If you've got a paper Bible, uh, we're going to be looking today at Psalm 51, wrapping up our examination of the life of David. If you've got the paper Bible, the small print one, it's 271. Uh, the large print one, it's 524. If you brought your own paper Bible and you've never searched around in the Bible much, Psalm is easy to find because it's the middle book of the Bible and it's the longest book of the Bible. And so if you can find the middle, you're almost always going to be in Psalm. It's essentially just the, the hymn book, the song book of the people of God uh, for thousands of years. And so uh, I think that's why it finds itself in the middle and it's such a good guide to us. Today's Psalm is Psalm 51. A lot of the Psalms were written by King David or by King David's court and attributed to King David. This Psalm is certainly one of his and it's probably one of his most uh, well-known Psalms, but certainly also one of the hardest. Early times in my faith, when I was in high school and college, I remember a guy who's a very special man in my faith journey. His name was Chuck. At one point in my journey, he handed me and a bunch of other guys like me a little business card uh, that had 10 questions on it. And they were, it was called like an accountability card. It was called accountability questions. And they would ask questions about had I read my Bible, had I prayed, had I been honest in all my dealings, had I had integrity in the way that I interacted with women, was I living out my faith, sharing my faith, was I handling money in a way that honored God, uh, was, and then the last one, I never will forget it, because the last question was always, and have you been 100% honest in all of your answers? And that card was really well-meaning. It was intended to help uh, me and other young men uh, become more like Jesus by sort of mining out the things that didn't need to be there and then implanting the things that did. And so they're a group of guys. But I I think the hard thing about being a young guy in college or in high school is we fear, if I'm honest, will I then be judged? And so this thing that had such a good intention actually ended up being counterproductive because we all ended up lying. You know, it's like nobody wants to admit that you cheated in school or that you've struggled with the opposite sex or that you're actually, in fact, lying on the very answers that you're supposed to be getting accountability uh, with or that you're struggling in your faith or you don't even know where your Bible is. It's like a doorstopper in a door somewhere in the house that you can't even find anymore. And so it became this thing, this card, and the relationships became less about confession and it became more about impressing. Uh, And that a lot of times happens to us. We feel like we have to have it together and we feel like, oh, I've got to have all the answers and I've got to have figured out this thing of following Jesus. And so it's hard to even admit that we sin and struggle and live against God and the gospel at times. And so I want to ask you just as a sort of a question before we get started today, when you sin, do you tend to ignore it? Do you excuse it? Do you feel shame and hide it? That's what we were doing as a group. Or do you own it, confess it? The biblical word for that is repenting of it. David was called a man after God's own heart. David was a man after God's heart. We've been looking for the last two months at the life of David and trying to see what was going on in his life that would cause the scripture writers to even call David that. He didn't call himself that. Others did. And I think the thing that makes David the most like God is not that he killed Goliath, It's not that he became a king. It's not that he uh, experienced covenant love, that chesed word we talked about a couple of weeks ago. It's not that. 
I think this is the story and this is the encounter that makes David the most like God. How David handled his worst sins is the thing that makes David a man after God's own heart. Eventually, David ran to God. It took a minute, but when David screwed up and sinned, he eventually ran to God. Now, I want to give you the story, the backstory, and I want to give you the confrontation, and then we're going to actually read this psalm, this Psalm 51. Here's the story. In 2 Samuel 11, David is an older man. His kingdom has been established, and he is fully in power, never to really be questioned again in his lifetime uh, in a serious way as to whether he's the king. And so in a moment in the spring, when most kings go off to war, David actually stays home. And he's standing out on the roof, and there's a young woman bathing on the roof, and he looks over, and he likes what he sees. And so because he's king and he has all the power, he calls this woman to come to his house and... um, because there are little ears in the room, let's just say they play a board game together. And the result of that board game is that she gets pregnant. And, um, and so now David's in a panic because he has now played a board game with a woman that he should have not been playing board games with. And, um, and so he finds out she has a husband. Her husband, Uriah, is actually one of his bodyguards, one of his main warriors. And so how is this going to go down that she is now pregnant and he's off at war with all the other warriors where David maybe probably should have been. And so David calls Uriah off the battlefield and basically says, man, just take a couple days off, go enjoy time with your wife. You guys go play some board games and we'll just see what happens, right? Uh, Hoping that Uriah would think he got uh, his wife pregnant. Uriah won't do it. He's a man of honor. And so he won't go home. So uh, David does everything he can to try to get this guy to go home and be with his wife, and ultimately Uriah wouldn't do it. And so David, continuing to panic, you know, when you're doing something wrong, just keeps ratcheting up, ratcheting up, eventually sends to the commander of his armies, Joab, and says, here's what I want you to do. Put Joab on the front line of battle. Or put Uriah on the front line of battle and let him die. And so they go to war. Actually, begin to lose the battle, but Uriah also in the process dies. Uh, Long story short, Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, eventually gives birth to this baby. Now, David is just letting all of this sin stew. No one knows about this other than he and Bathsheba, because now Uriah is dead. Nobody knows the plot. Nobody knows what's going on. Just a woman pregnant. Totally, he's good. He's not in trouble. He's, this, this is a done issue. Nobody had eyes to see it, except God. And God had a man named Nathan, who was really David's sort of personal pastor. And so Nathan, in 2 Samuel 12, comes to David. And he doesn't confront him at first. He doesn't say anything negative. He just tells David about something going on. He says, listen, there's a man in the country who is insanely rich and has more sheep than he can possibly wrap his brain around. And he is throwing a party And they're going to have lamb chops at the party. But the man, being a jerk, decides that he's not going to kill his own sheep for this party to have lamb chops. He actually is going to take the sheep of another man. And not just any man. There's one guy in the country who's got one sheep. And he loves that sheep like it's a human and it's his own child. And he takes care of it and he feeds it and he nurtures it. And the rich man went and he took the poor man's sheep and he killed it and served lamb chops. Well, David's face is getting red and he's angry. He's angry. How could someone take what wasn't theirs when they had everything? And so David says, who is he? I'm going to go get him and I'm going to kill him and take him out. And Nathan looks at David and says, David, you are the man. 
what you did with Bathsheba and Uriah is exactly what I just described to you in that story. And David is cut to the heart and he begins to repent and he feels, uh, he feels shame. So I don't want to dive too deep into this today, but we live in a very individualistic society in America and we tend to think in individualism. So if I do wrong, it's I did wrong or I did right. It's right and wrong, black and white. David's culture, the Middle East, even to this day, Eastern cultures are collectivist cultures. They think in group. And so David, this sin with Bathsheba is not so much about right and wrong. It's about the fact that Uriah acted with honor and David acted with shame. And what he did was shameful. And in that moment, David feels shame and conviction. And out of that, he wrote Psalm 51. Now I want to read it to you today. It's a little bit longer, uh, but we would be doing ourselves a complete injustice if we didn't read this whole thing. So let me read to you Psalm 51. David, out of a place of brokenness, writes, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, covenant love that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what's evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness that the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from all my sins and blot out my iniquities. And I think one of the most powerful verses in the Old Testament in the Hebrew Scriptures. Create me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. And I'll teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. Open, O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I'd give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good design in your good pleasure, that's the nation of Israel. Do good design in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem, then you will then will you delight and write sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. And so I want to go through this kind of section by section, idea by idea, if we can, really quickly today, and share a few things with you that are so foundational to us following Jesus. Uh, in Jeremiah 1, God calls Jeremiah, and God, and God says, look, I have called you to uproot, destroy, throw down, uh, and tear away, I believe, and I've called you to build and to plant. And so often God has to begin to uproot things out of our life and out of our heart before he can even begin to build and to plant. So in verses 1 and 2, David begs for mercy. And I love that he starts this thing with that word, chesed, that word, steadfast, covenant love, God's unrelenting love that's not based on our behavior or our performance. He says, God, act toward me in covenant love, relationship first. I think we have a slide for this. If you'll go to that first slide, Dowdy. Well, you go to that first one, it should say relationship first, or the second one. It should be the second one. There it is. God operates toward us relationship first, like a parent ought to operate toward a child. Uh, 
Almost nothing else in our world operates like this, but God does. And in this moment, when David's completely busted, he says, God, please operate toward me relationship first, no matter how we feel when we sin. And sin's just missing the mark. Like, I grew up thinking, there was a phrase in the South, uh, we don't drink and we don't chew and we don't date the girls who do. And so basically, if you didn't drink alcohol, use tobacco, or date loose women, you basically were raised to think you were pretty good. But sin is, uh, is really like, the better word for sin is like, if that uh, food chart, that food pie over there, were a bullseye, like a target, sin occurs anytime I fire the arrow and I miss the bullseye perfectly. So whether I miss it just barely and I hit the S where the vegetables is, or I miss it completely and fire it into the closet, if I missed it, if I missed the bullseye, then... I wasn't perfect, and that's sin. God is holy and perfect, and anytime we miss the bullseye and, and we do anything just a little bit wrong, technically, we sin against God. But no matter how we feel when we sin and fall short of God's perfection, we still belong to God if you're a Christian. Now, everybody's not automatically a Christian and part of God's family, but for those who are, when they uh, sin, and as we do, we don't lose relationship. Dowdy, if you'll go to the second slide. David recognized that his sin, first of all, was against God. The relationship held, but the sin was, first of all, against God. Even the adultery part, the murder part, that was all against God. And when you and I sin, like if I yell at my kids, that's actually against God even more than it's against Noah and Noah. If I get on Natalie's case about something, that's actually against God more than it's against Noah Noah. If you look at something on the internet or you go to a party and you start drinking and then you end up drinking way more than you should have drunk. Like, or anytime we do any of these things, if we cheat on our taxes, it's almost tax season, and we miss the mark, that is first and foremost against God. And it leads David in this to say, I sinned against you first. Sin is specific when we sin it's specific. It's not like, oh, Carson's a sinner. No, Carson commits specific sins against God. It's personal. It's not universal. Like, oh, we're all sinners. That is true. But Dasheen commits specific sins against God. Renee commits specific sins against God. Hope commits specific sins against God. It's personal. It's between us and God. And then it's against God and against people. And it's even against ourselves. Never happens in a vacuum. And so David, when he says uh, that part in verse 5, he says, even from my mom's womb, I was conceived in sin. He's not passing the buck being like, well, and my kids, you know, my kids do this because this is what I did to my mom. Like, you find some way to blame your parents for your own problems, right? Well, I only, you know, talk bad about my aunt because my mom always talked bad about her sister-in-law. Like, it's not that. It's, uh, David is saying, listen, I'm such a sinner and I can be so rebellious against the Lord that it's like having my mom's eyes or like having my dad's height. It's just so ingrained, he says, into me to be unbelieving and sinful. It's, he's not blaming his mom. He's saying this is part of his character and he's accepting the verdict. I mean, he goes on in 6, 9. And he says, cleanse me with hyssop. Now, I didn't know what in this world this was, but I'm going to show you this morning. Uh, do you guys, are, in New England, I've never seen this. But in the South, there's a, this awful, awful plant. They call it like a, what do they call it, like a cattail bush? It's like this huge bush with these 
things on the end that look like pipe cleaners almost. Essentially, uh, when he says what, uh, um, hyssop, it would be like having this big, uh, like almost like a big pipe cleaner, right? And you would put blood, you would dip it in blood, and you would take it and you would throw it onto something that was sinful and unclean. And by putting the blood on it, you were cleansing it before God. And so David says, cleanse me with hyssop. It's this idea of you're making something ceremonially clean by actually putting blood on it. And he says, wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. But I learned as a kid, mustard, blood. There are a few things that never came out, like mustard and blood. And there were others, but like, and Georgia red clay. You didn't get those things on your jeans or you were never getting it out. David says, I've got, I I've need to be washed and cleansed in hyssop for purifying. I need to be made whiter than snow and be made clean. He says, the broken bones, the bones that have been broken by my sin that God is allowed to be broken, I need them healed. My sins, he says, I need them blotted out. That doesn't negate what happens. It just makes it ceremonially clean. I used to get a lot of speeding tickets. I never knew. I know, Lana's like, for shame, for shame. I never knew. My mom, if she would have been smart, she would have made me pay the insurance bill. She never did. The judges and the courts, when we paid the fine, sort of, it was on my record, but the, they weren't, I wasn't being held against me, right? My mom, in grace, wasn't even holding it against me. It was cleansed. It was washed in blood of my mom's forgiveness, but it was still there. She still was having to forgive, and I still knew I had done wrong. And that's what David's saying. God, make me ceremonially clean. But then he goes on in that verse, verse 10, 11, 12, and 13, uh, where he says, create in me a clean heart. And he's like, God, I don't want to just be ceremonially clean. I want to be in a right relationship with you. I don't want you to wash my heart. I want you to give me a new heart. I want inward renewal. I think this is a slide, Dowdy. He was asking for, uh, yeah, that one. He was asking for restoration, ceremonial restoration, and renewal for what was dead to be made alive. Renewal only happens because of grace and because of the cross. David, when he writes this, is actually looking forward to Jesus on some level one day, saying, God, give me what I can never earn on my own. Give me relationship and grace despite my performance. Now, for us and for David, this flows out of three things. I think three things happen. If you want to write down three things today, here they go. Number one, this flows out of confession. I think we have a slide that says confession. Yes. Perfect. Confession is taking personal responsibility for sinful actions, words, and attitudes without denial, excusing, or blame shifting. <clears throat> Confessing is taking personal responsibility for our sinful actions, words, and attitudes without denial, excusing, or blame shifting. Just saying, God, I'm busted. I'm busted. You know, you'll see sometimes in church, people will raise their hands in, in music, you know, and I, I love, like, there have been times in my life, I don't like to do this because I'm a sweater, so usually, like, I will just do something like this if I were to raise my hands in worship. I don't want to make anybody uncomfortable, right? But there have been sometimes in my life where I've stumbled into worship, into music, feeling so guilty about how I've sinned against God that I literally just feel the need to raise my hands and surrender like I've been busted by the police. And that's what confession is. It's taking personal responsibility for what I've said, how I've acted, and even what I've thought and how, how I've had these thought patterns without denying it, excusing it, or blame shifting. 
Confession flows from and empowers the second thing. Dowdy, if you'll go to the next slide. It empowers repentance. Repentance is the church word, the biblical word for turn. Repentance just means a 180. Repentance is a radical change in my heart leading to a radical change of direction in my life. See, a lot of times what we want to do is we want to confess, but we don't want to change. We just want to be like, God, will you forgive this? But I'm still going to go do this stuff on Saturday night. You know, like that's the way of religion. I'm going to come to church on Sunday, receive communion, do my thing, and then go live the exact same way. That is not the biblical response, and that's not what David does here. He's changed, his heart is changing, and he says, my behavior, by your help, God, is going to change the direction. My behavior, my direction of my life is going to change. And repentance leads to the third thing, Dowdy, if you'll go to that slide. Repentance leads to faith. And faith is trusting God enough to obey him. Faith is such a cultural word uh, in, your, in your line of work, Carson. I bet you hear people say all the time, man, we just got to have faith in other people. I have faith in the goodness of humanity. We got to have faith in our political leaders. We got to have faith that wealthy people, successful people, empowered people are going to make a difference. We talk about faith so much that it's like we have faith in faith. We don't actually have faith in something. But biblically, the idea of faith for the follower of Jesus is that we would trust God enough to obey him. And in verses 14 through 19, here's what happens. David walks through confession, repentance, and faith, and he becomes a worshiper again. He becomes a worshiper again. Praise is not penance. If you read your Bible this week, that is not penance. If you listen to a Christian song this week, a worship song, that's not penance. I'm going to listen to eight worship songs, read four verses, and pray three uh, Lord's prayers. And then it's going to be cool with you and God. Listen, Jesus died on the cross, so we don't have to do all that nonsense. Praise is not penance. Praise is the response of a forgiven heart. It's saying, oh man, God, you forgive me? I got to sing about that. I'm totally loved despite the fact that I've been acting like a complete bozo. Man, I want to pray. Ooh, I'm free. That's what praise is. David became uh, a worshiper and a witness again, and even a person who prayed for his nation. And so here's the big idea. If you want to write anything down today, we'll actually put this up as a slide today, uh, later on Instagram. I think we have a slide for this. Recognizing sin is more important than avoiding sin recognizing your sin is more important than avoiding sin. There's a great Latin phrase, Felix culpa. It means, oh, happy sin. Oh, happy sin. Sin caused Jesus' death, and it leads us to grace. So we don't run towards sin as followers of Jesus, and we don't constantly navel-gaze like, ooh, what, was, what were my intentions here? Did I say something loose and unkind? Was I respectful to my grandmother? Like, we're not constantly looking down, like, feeling guilty. This is kind of the politically correct culture that we live in now. We constantly have to wonder if every word and every action is going to have this negative reaction of, like, ooh, I drank from a plastic straw. Think of all the sea turtles that may or may not lose their life. Like, God is not asking us to be that worried and inward so that we can't live outward and full of praise. But what God is saying is uh, we will sin and we do sin and we do stupid, stupid, sinful things that cause Jesus to die. And when God's spirit puts his hand on us 
and says, like when Nathan said, David, you're the man. And it was as if God's hand grabbed David by the heart and did a twist. Does that ever happen to you? God grabs your heart and then twists. The other night in community group, I was repeating something someone else had uh, said. And I used a swear word. And immediately Owen, who I thought was up the steps, goes, Ooh, Dad, you swore in the middle of group, like in that moment. God grabbed my heart and did a twist on it because my child heard me say something I tell him he probably shouldn't say. In that moment, rather than just feeling guilty, I just say, God, I'm a mess. And I need you. And I confess that was sinful and wrong, caused Jesus' death. But I I repent, I want to turn from that, and I believe you, and I will adjust my life. And the the talking. When we moved to New England, I'm not going to lie. Like, I used to swear a lot, a lot. It just was one of those areas I got really loose on and didn't feel bad about anymore. Swear and didn't even bother me anymore. But the Bible says, don't let unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. It's unbefitting to people who follow Jesus. And so God began to grab at my heart and want to change me. And man, I don't do that anymore by God's grace, not because I'm good. It's because God has changed my heart out of a place of confession and repentance. And so we confess, we repent, and we believe. Intimate relationship is more important than moral perfection. So when you sin this week, and you will, because you're not going to avoid it, I want you to, I would rather you own it than avoid it, recognize it, rather than think it's something that we've got to pretend like we don't do. I want to encourage you to pray these things. God, I confess blank. I confess whatever it is that you just did that God put his hand on. I thank you Jesus died for blank. I confess it. I'm thankful Jesus died for it. I receive forgiveness. Thank you, Jesus. Help me turn from blank and walk with you. This Wednesday, I believe, is Ash Wednesday. Am I right? I think it is. If your goal, with if you do Lent, and we used to have friends in the South who did Lent as basically just a sanctified uh, diet. You know, they were like, what am I going to give up for Lent this year? I want to be like, why don't you give up the Facebook post trying to make everybody think that you're so holy posting about what you're giving up for Lent. Like, that was all she was doing. And uh, we were thinking about this person the other day. If you want to give something up for Lent, As a sign of penance, don't bother. You're wasting your time. If you want to punish yourself and take away chocolate or coffee or meat for 40 days to punish yourself for being human, don't bother. Jesus died for that. You can't pay the price for it. You would be trying to add to what he did on the cross. If you want to give up something for Lent out of a sense of guilt, well, I drink too much. And so I'm going to give up alcohol just because I just feel guilty all the time when I drink. That is counterproductive and anti-gospel. I would rather you drink and feel conviction causing you to repent rather than just live with this guilt pretending like it's not there. But if you enter into a time of Lent and you want to give up something as an act of worship and gratitude and identification with Jesus and his suffering, I think that's a beautiful thing. David was called a man after God's own heart. And here's how we're going to end this series. We hear that. Like, he's a man after God's own heart. Uh, Desheen played on this really tough season this year in Downey 2. Made it all the way to the end of a tough season. Last year, you didn't even qualify to play, did you? But this year, he went all in. And uh, I remember, even before the season start, Desheen told me, he said, 
Coach can't yell at everyone on the team, but he can yell at me because I know he loves it and it's making the team better when he gives me a hard time. That was impressive. You know what? In that moment, he was sort of a man after Coach Coleman's heart, but even more, he understood that Coach Coleman's heart was to build character into the lives of these players and maybe some wins, right? And so he was after Coach Coleman's heart. He was pursuing what Coach wanted for him and for the team. When the Bible says that David was a man after God's own heart, sure, it means it resembles God's heart. But what it really means is David was pursuing God's heart. He was chasing God's heart. And that's what we want for our lives. God, may we be chasing your heart in all areas. Let me pray, and, uh, and then we'll wrap up for today.